This is Soundmaking, a podcast made by Hogan Stenner and myself, Matthew Shlomovitz. Each episode of Soundmaking features a composer or performer discussing the how and why of music they've created. For this episode of Soundmaking, I spoke with San Diego-based percussionist Steve Schick. We spoke about Steve's collaboration with sound designer Shirok Yadagari on a wonderfully idiosyncratic performance of the Ursonata by Kirch Fitters. Ursonata is a four-movement work, and you'll hear the second movement in the middle of this episode and the third movement at the end. This recording features on Steve's new album, A Hard Rain, released on Islandia Music. We warmly recommend you check out the rest of this album, which features classic pieces by John Cage, Helmut Luckerman, Morton Feldman and Carline Stockhausen. In our chat, Steve speaks about the nature of the collaboration with Shirok, the melancholy that imbues the Ur Sonata, and how the work connects to modernist percussion music. I'm Stephen Schick. Uh, I come from the United States. I was actually born and raised in Iowa on a farming family, and I live now and have lived for 30-some years in San Diego, where I teach at the University of California in San Diego. And if I'm asked how to categorize myself, that's always a little difficult, or it has been recently, because I've done quite a number of things. I've, I've written a book and a lot of articles. I conduct a symphony orchestra and do a fair amount of conducting. But percussion was my original training. It's my sort of, if you'll pardon the expression, my one true love. And it is where I find my focus now coming back. And so I would say, first and foremost, I'm a percussionist who conducts and, and writes. Yeah, the Orsonata has been of great interest to me for a really long time, and I, I can't really even pinpoint why I was so attracted to it in the first place, except perhaps that when I heard it first performed, I was aware that I was listening to reinvented sounds or repurposed sounds via the voice, which were really, really similar to the repurposed sounds that I, as a percussionist, was doing in the practice room. So whereas the phonemes, the syllables, the parts of words in Orsonata feel like the detritus of a language, bits and pieces that were picked up and reassembled for the purposes of art, that felt quite close to my looking for the perfect break drum or a bit of a you know, railroad spike or something like that. And so I felt an affinity with Ursonata to begin with. And then the idea of collection and retention, a sort of excursion into memory of our earliest versions of language or the earliest uses of the voice, uh, deepened my, my interest. And so well, I think now it has been about 15 years that I've been actively performing Ursonata. And I often put it on programs with percussion with the express notion of showing the commonality between the two of showing how the exploration of vocal sounds and the projection in a dramatic sense of things which don't seem to make sense felt very much like doing the same thing in percussion. One of the fascinating things about Ursonata is the way in which this seemingly amorphous material, as I said, the bits and pieces of language, are constructed into forms, which in the 1920s, uh, when Schwitter's uh, created the piece were the primary movers of, of formal design in music. So a first movement is a kind of introduction and sonata form. The last movement is a sort of rondo. And the second and third movements are 
are very much character pieces, as you would expect in the in the middle movements of of a symphony, a slow movement and and a scherzo. So one of the things that I really love about the development of the second and third movements is that it invites the performer to embody the characterizations of the language that gives a level beyond the simple recitation of the text. One of the first things that interested me about uh, Orsonata was the invitation to embody the text in a dramatic level beyond the mere recitation of the, of, of, of the words. And with that in mind, I reached out to a colleague, um, Sharok Yadagari, who is, teaches with me here at UC San Diego, who has a long history of sound design in theater and is a music technologist. And we decided from the outset that this would be a duo version, a, a collaborative moment in which each of us would have a role in composing, in quotation marks, the piece and performing the piece. So Sharok designed a system of technology that allowed for very kind of nuanced, what seems at first to be looping, but it actually is more uh, oblong and, and less symmetrical than a mere loop. And... Um, and the idea that he could also spatialize the sounds, that he could create a soundscape as I was performing. So from the outset, uh, our performance was conceived of as a duo rather than a solo with electronic enhancements. The second movement of the Orsonata is marked Largo. Uh, and of course, that has evocations into the classical world when you think of the Dvorak Symphony, which which is called the Symphony from the New World, this idea of an expansive, almost chorale-like um, dramatic function. And so with Sharok, we decided to do a couple of things. One is to create a bed of harmony that he uh, made by pre-recording my voice, a kind of quasi-consonant chord that shifts microtonally as the, as the movement goes along. And then following the instructions of, of, of Schwitters to descend the voice uh, over the course of the of the movement, I start in in the well the highest register that I have available to me, and gradually uh, uh, lower the tessitura of the voice into the lowest. So the idea behind the second movement, for for, for me and for us at least, is that it should be a kind of a, a universal sound world. All the possible vocal uh, sounds, aspirations, inspirations, um, moving from top to bottom in, in the range, a sense that there's both a large arc and every once in a while something quite specific thanks to the, the reverberations that the, that the technology does. So the, the notion here was a kind of universe of sound that was, that was resting in um, a highly textured and nuanced uh, sonic ambient ecology.
Yeah, so that second movement that we just heard is an example of the kind of overall sonic approach that we were trying for. And we recorded this piece at the University of California in San Diego with, with our colleague Andrew Muncy, the recording engineer. And so from the outset, not just of Orsonata, but of the entire uh, recording on which it appears, the notion was to make a high-quality audio recording. And this was an originally a kind of debate <clears throat> because percussion, and I think also Orsonata has such a strong visual component. The question was, should we make uh, a video? Should this be a DVD or a video release? And uh, we eventually came back to the idea that we would spend all of our energy on a, a kind of... Yeah, and on the acoustical side of things. And so in this particular case, very close mic voice, Sharok uh, working in an adjoining room, which we had to do because we recorded this in the pandemic, so we couldn't actually be in the room together. So he was connected uh, via cabling and, and all kinds of technology to what I was doing. And so we created this piece there almost uh, sightlessly. In other words, he couldn't see me, I couldn't see him. We were really being guided by our ears. And... And in the third movement especially, that was a critical aspect because it's another one of the character pieces of the, of the Orsonata. The scherzo with its 
kind of like looping sound effects. At least this is how we created the the, the movement. And um, and so this is a, a, a piece about sound in any event. And that's what we were going for in the recording. So in both the second and the third movements, the 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 notion behind the the interface between technology and the spoken word was that technology created a fixed aspect in the second movement. It was the kind of chorale sound. In the third movement, it's this gradual built up of a, of a rhythmic loop. So those pre-existed. And then on top of that, there were real-time transformations of, of the voice. What I found fascinating about the third movement, and this actually refers back to my career as conductor, is that I wondered how would one handle a movement like that in a Beethoven symphony? After Beethoven started calling the, the, the third movement's scherzos rather than minuet and trio, for example. So he was clearly interested in, in sort of amping up the, the energy of the first part, but that creates the possibility for a contrast with the middle section of, of the piece. Now, I understand that this is not Beethoven, but it's a, it refers to a practice of the 19th century, which is pretty well established uh, in, in, in terms of how we understand third movements of classical symphonies. So borrowing from that, I wanted to make the outer sections of, of the third movement lively, rhythmic, almost kind of like a circus barker uh, calling people to a tent, something that was a little over the top in terms of the energy which then sets the possibility for the center section of that movement being perhaps a little uh, uh, more sostenuto, a little lower energy, and, and almost in a kind of narrative way, a more melancholy moment. I think it's really important to remember about Orsonata that it is fundamentally a sad piece or a melancholy piece in that it is a response to the outrages of mechanization in the world, a response to the First World War, a response to many, many things. So underneath this kind of giddy circus atmosphere that's, that pervades the piece, there is a deep aquifer of reflection and melancholy. And I think it's important to let that in from time to time. That's, for me at least, how the middle section of the third movement functions. When I play a version of Orsonata that involves uh, multi-channel electronics, collaboration with a music technologist, and in the dramatized, staged version, I, I very much realize that I am taking a non-purist stance with respect to Orsonata, and and I haven't had any personal pushback, but I can really imagine that that people have taken exception to that, and 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 of course that is completely and utterly their right to do so. But but for me, what I've found fascinating is the externally facing aspect of Orsonata, the way these small bits of language lead you out. They lead you out into the world. They lead you out into different ways of of representing it, including music technology. I think the, the reaction that I have liked the best was in the first performance I did at the Maison de Poésie in, in Paris. And I was on stage getting ready to do this. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I'm playing the ultimate sound poem. I'm reciting the ultimate sound poem in the Maison de Poésie on a sound poetry festival. It would be like someone who happens to play a late Beethoven quartet coming to you know, Marlborough to play. It felt like I felt like such an outlier in that situation. 
But my favorite comment came from a, a woman who came up to me afterwards and said, it's so wonderful what you've done. It appears you might have studied music. Is that true? And I thought this was fantastic as a comment that, that the door opened to so many different ways that it wasn't evident immediately, at least to this person, that this comes from a musical point of view as opposed to a, a poetic or dramatical point of view. So I really liked that. And, you know, I think people have been very friendly to have kept the uh their more critical thoughts to themselves although of course that is fine if they want to express those um and what i find and then i'll stop what i find most interesting about ursonata and i i thank you so much for this conversation is the way it actually links back to the other pieces on this recording in a way, this recording was a kind of pandemic journal, a sort of reacquaintance with my younger percussionist self. The, the recording consists of the standard foundational modernist percussion solos, in addition to Orsonata, um, and that I've played in many cases for nearly 50 years. So when the pandemic hit and life was uncertain and nobody seemed to know anything about what was facing us, I sought refuge in a kind of way in the precision of the music I'd played for a really long time, the, the exacting standards, both musically, intellectually, and in, in terms of being a percussion virtuoso in those pieces by, by Stockhausen and by Lachenmann and by Morten Feldman. And very much similarly, the Ursonata brought me back to a kind of basic level in which I was standing on the firm footing of language, on the firm footing of basic sounds. And so in a way, while it feels dramatic to say that this was the difference between sanity and insanity over the course of the pandemic, there's some truth to that, that reacquainting myself, immersing myself in the most basic fundamental building blocks of my art provided a handhold at a moment where everything seemed slippery. So I'm really happy to include Orsonata with those pieces because they serve the same function. They are the architecture on which the modern percussive art has been built. Lanka 
Lanka Turkey, Rump Rump, Lanka Turkey. 